Okay, that cacophony of a mix-up mash of love pop songs. It just shows us that our society is, it is drawn to love, especially romantic love. But God's love transcends all of that. And today is what we're going to talk about. And as we look back into the letter to the First Corinthians, we'll be in chapter 13. Some people say this is the classic love chapter. Now, there are other great chapters in the Bible that have to do with love. The, the Gospel of John, as well as the letter of John, has some great things to say. But there's no denying that this chapter gives a focus on what love is or what it should look like, especially in the body of Christ. If you've been with us as we've gone through um, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is addressing a church that is immature, that has, I guess, a certain overvalue of some gifts, especially perhaps the gift of tongues, because they believe it helps them to appear spiritual. But unfortunately, their valuing of these gift or gifts has been to the exclusion and the degradation of others. So Paul, in 12, tries again to, to bring a good, healthy framework to these gifts. These gifts that God has given his believers, his followers. Gifts that are given to each one individually. Gifts that are given for the building up of the body, not for the exaltation of self. And that God has put us in a body, if you will. Each having a specific role, a specific place, um, different responsibilities, all needing each other, and all should be valued as such. But then Paul starts moving away from the gifts per se, and the concern for them more to the concern for people, for the members of the body. And all this being said, Paul interjects love, or the lack thereof, into this reality. So if you would, let's read the passage together, and we're going to be in chapter 13, but I actually want to step back to the second half of verse 31 in chapter 12. So let's read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31b, all the way to the end of 13. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we will prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, 
I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let me pray for us, then we'll get into God's Word today. So Lord, this is a a wonderful, beautiful passage. We thank you for it, and we ask you to open our eyes to help us to see what you have for us. Open our ears to help us to hear what you have for us. And I pray that you use this servant to speak forth your truth, that we might live and follow you with our whole heart and worship you in spirit and in truth. So Lord Jesus, is in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Well, obviously this passage has a lot to say about the nature of love. Its, con- its, its content, its cadence, it really registers in the heart about the truth of what love is. It is both profound and poetic. And even our secular society recognizes just the amazing content. I can't tell you how many weddings I've been to of people that are not believers, but they want this passage read because of what it says. But here's the challenge in, in preaching this, especially through the, the series through 1 Corinthians. I can either focus on the first, you know, the verses in 4 through 8, which are 16 characteristics about love, and, and preach what I call the trees. And it's tremendously applicable. It's tremendously wonderful. Or I can preach what I call the forest. That is the context of the letter. That is the emptiness of seeking to exercise spiritual gifts without love. Well, I'm going to do both, but not today. Today we're going to look at the forest. We're going to look at the forest and kind of see the big picture. And then come back next week and look at the 16 characteristics and what does love look like. But remember, the Apostle Paul is trying to reel in these these. Um, new believers in, in, in the church of Corinth. And they've kind of lost their way. They've forgotten that they are rescued, redeemed, and reconciled by no merit of their own, but by what Jesus has done for them. And they're needing, needing to extend that to one another. But they've lost the big picture. They're enamored by the gifts. And remember the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave is, first of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. He also said that the hallmark of how people will know that you're a follower of Jesus is that you have love for one another. So Paul kind of points to the bleak reality of gifts, gifts with the absence of love. So he starts out in verse 1 saying, If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So Paul kind of starts himself out as using himself as the straw man, as the example. 
And he was a man who did have a lot of the spiritual gifts. And he says, look, if I speak in tongues, but I have not love, I am a clanging cymbal. But tongues was a gift that this church seemed to be fixated on. They believed somehow that this gift made them more spiritual than others. And we define speaking in tongues as a spirit-inspired, unintelligible utterance either in human language or angelic language, that is not naturally understood by humans. And for them, they, I believe they thought they were, we're speaking the language of heaven, an overrealized eschatology, if you will. But here's the problem. When you're speaking and nobody understands, that's not loving. That's not loving. To exercise this gift in a group where no one is, can interpret, it's unloving. And it puts the attention on you and it makes you, or makes Paul or anyone using it, a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. There's a lot of noise, but there's nothing being said. No one is being struck, instructed, no one is, is being edified, no one is being built up. And the Apostle Paul will unpack this a little bit more in chapter 14. But he starts with this gift because I think this is a gift that the, the Corinthians really was their, their pet gift. And all the gifts we're talking about have already been previously mentioned in chapter 12, verses 8 through 11, or in, and 28 through 30. But now he goes on to what we call maybe more supernatural gifts. So in verse 2, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Perhaps these are what we call revel, uh, revelatory gifts, bringing revelation, that of prophecy, or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. That is, you have a lot of Bible knowledge, a lot of theology. You see how it fits together, or God is actually showing me stuff himself. You know, we often, those are things that we value. We value understanding the knowledge of God that God reveals. But Paul will also say in this letter in chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And he continues on to say, and if I have faith, that can move mountains. It can remove mountains. And that goes back to the gifts of faith and of healing and even miraculous works, even mentioned earlier in in verses 8 and 9 of, of chapter 12. He says, but if I have not love, I am nothing. You know, oftentimes we associate great spirituality with someone that seems to have great spiritual gifting, don't we? I mean, it seems like well, God would, would, how God would use someone that way, they, seem to be, they should be very godly. But again, without love, it's nothing. It's nothing. And sometimes I think we can be very utilitarian about the gifts we have and forget to have those infused with love. It's, it's interesting. It kind of brings a new, a new understanding to what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And he will tell them plainly, 
I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. If we lack love for God or for each other, it's nothing. It's nothing. And this is even true of what we would call service gifts or sacrificing gifts. Verse 3, And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now that may kind of push us the wrong direction because oftentimes we say love is associated with action, with sacrifice, with giving, with service. Indeed, the verse I started out with, God demonstrates his own love toward us and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's service, there's sacrifice. It's demonstrated. But we can serve others. We can sacrifice for others with selfish motives. Maybe to look good in front of others, convince them or convince ourselves how good we are. It makes us feel good, makes us feel better about ourselves. Dating myself, if you remember back the old pop song from Michael Jackson, I'm looking at the man in the mirror, I'm asking him to change his ways, and no message can become any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make that change. Right? But he says, it's going to make me feel real good. It's about me feeling good about me rather than loving the person who's in need. I can serve out of my own selfish desire. Or, number two, to serve or sacrifice to others to somehow say, I'm going to pay God back or I'm going to, I'm going to do something to merit or earn my salvation. And this flies in the face of the gospel. Muhammad Ali, whose name was formerly Cassius Clay, became a Muslim. And his Muslim theology basically says, look, if my good outweighs my bad in the end, then I get to go to heaven. But if my bad outweighs my good, then I go to hell. I mean, we, we disagree with that because it's, it's a Muslim faith. It flies in the face of the gospel, but I think many of us are living like that. Like if I can somehow earn my way. No, no. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God that no one, no one can boast. But again, getting back to the motive of love for our gifts it matters to God. And if you're not using love as a motive in how you employ your gifts, then you gain, you gain nothing. Gifting cannot replace love. It is empty. Rather, love needs to be expressed through our gifts to build others up. And through relationships. So next comes what I call the description of the character of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. And love never fails. 
Again, like I said, next week we'll look more intently into these 16 descriptors. But here's the thing. Love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling about how you make me feel. Rather, it is an others-centered attitude and action for their good, for their well-being. And to be certain, these 16 descriptors do raise the bar, don't they? It shows that love, real love, is probably beyond our own abilities, our own resources. And it's going to take something greater than ourselves. It's going to take the Holy Spirit for us to love like that. The fruit of the Spirit, the first, the first gift enlisted is, is love. It's love. That's true spirituality. Not your gifting, but how well do you love? Of course, this list is quite eloquent, eloquent, and, and some commentators have suggested, as a, you know, I gotta do my, my nerd work, right? Every week as I read through this. Some, some commentators have suggested that, you know, it's so eloquent that it seems that Paul must have had it in his hip pocket somewhere. He must have, you know, picked it up from somebody or, or something and, and put it right in there when he had this opportunity as he, as he addressed this letter to the Corinthians. Now, I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter to me whether he did or did not. I mean, as a pastor, Knowing I got to preach every week, I've got to, I, I'm always in look, looking for new material, looking for good material, right? And they say that, you know, all work and no plagiarism makes for dull preaching and writing. <laughs> but, and also the fact that all truth is God's truth, right? If it is ultimately true, it, it is in, in, it's God's truth. However, there's plenty of a reason to believe that the context of, of Paul's words were really really brought about by the life situation that with the Corinthians, about all the things they were struggling with, all their dysfunction, and then gave birth to Paul's words as he paints this picture of what godly love looks like in the body of Christ. Especially as we get to what I call the negative qualities, or what love is not. And Paul's saying, look, this is what love is, and this is not how you're acting. You guys are missing the boat. Let me just point out a few of them. Love does not envy. But you do, Corinthians. You're starting out having quarrels. Making factions amongst yourselves. You're you know, having rivalries between these factions. Love does not envy. And some of you are withholding. Withholding because you're envying somebody else's gift. You're saying, because I don't have this gift, I'm not a part of the body. Some of you are envying, Corinthians. Love does not boast, but you do. Some are saying, well, I follow Peter, or I follow Paul, I follow Paul. You've created little clubs. Some of you boast about your wisdom. Chapter 3, verse 18. But it's really regurgitated worldly wisdom. It's not the wisdom of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. Christ and Him crucified. And love is not proud. But you are, Corinthians. Some of you have become arrogant, even against me, your apostle. As he says in chapter 4, verse 18. And some of you are so puffed up with what your knowledge is. 
as he says in chapter 8, verse 1. Love is not rude, or it does not dishonor others. But you have, you come to communion, you come to the Lord's Supper, and you who have a lot of money and a lot of food, you sit there and eat in front of those who don't have anything. And then some of you get drunk. You're humiliating others that have nothing. Chapter 11, verses 21 through 22. He says, shall I praise you? He said, certainly not. Love is not self-seeking. But you are, Corinthians, some of you are looking to exercise your freedom in the knowledge that you have. Saying that these idols that you're going to eat in their temples, they're not gods at all. So I've got freedom to do that. You don't mind that you're causing some other, other believer coming out of idolatry to stumble. You're using your freedom as an, as an opportunity to seek out your own self-interest and your own appetite. And love does not delight in evil, he says in verse 6. But you have, you've got a man living with his father's wife, and you're boasting about it, rather than being cut to the heart that this ought not be in the body of Christ. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul was not looking to be generic or general about his description about what love looks like, but rather be specific with this church that had its priorities mixed up. Giving a close look. What you think is good, that's not love. Now again, it's easy to get caught up in these, these few verses these 16 descriptors, but Paul had a bigger picture to paint. As he writes at the end of this, at end of verse 7 and then verse 8, that love always perseveres and love never fails. And that points to the, what I call the endurance of love. As it continues on in verse 8, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection, or completion, as the new NIV says, comes, or the perfect, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah, comes the perfect, but when the perfection and completion comes, what is not perfect or what is in part will disappear. The imperfect, excuse me. Paul returns to the issue of spiritual gifts. Pointing out to their limitation. Pointing to a time when they will cease to be needed. Because the perfection or the completion will have come. This is the word that Jesus uses when he's on the cross. And he says to Telestai, it is done, it is finished, it is complete, paid in full. That completion, that perfection, is the physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, right now, any knowledge that you or I have about God, while it may be accurate, it may be right, it may be true, it is still partial. And anything that God would choose to reveal through a prophecy, even, is, is still partial. 
is still partial. Now, I'm not even going to open up the case of somebody having the gift of prophecy, but let's just take some prophecy we already know about in, in the Word of God. The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation talks about the Antichrist. It talks about the rapture, about the tribulation, about the millennium. It talks about Armageddon, the last battle. What do those things fully look like? We don't know fully. We have our approximations. We have our approximations, but it's still partial information. And we won't fully know until Jesus comes. And by the way, that's part of the purpose of the revelatory gifts. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7, to prepare for Jesus' return. He says, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait our Lord Jesus to be revealed. But that's what we're looking forward to. That's what those gifts are for, to prepare us for His return. And it's going to be mind-blowing. My mom grew up in a little town called Thedford, Nebraska. And there is a paper that gets printed once a week there. It's called the Thomas County Herald. And you might, you know, find a little story about Mrs. Myrtle with having coffee with Mrs. Nutter, the price of corn. And maybe now there's an, an, an you know, a quick article about Trump and his, you know, twittering, tweeting, whatever. But that's, it's, it's not a whole lot of information. There's a lot more going on. And that's kind of like what we're experiencing right now. But when the perfect comes, it's like the internet is given to you. And all of a sudden, boom! A whole new world is open to you. Now, I'm not, every, every illustration has its, you know, shortcomings. So don't include fake news here, all right? But I mean, it's, it's going to be totally different when Jesus returns. A whole new cacophony of just understanding and knowing and knowing Him. Paul's point is that gifts reveal partial information, but in light of where eternity and history is going, they are temporary. And Paul further seeks to illustrate this, this current state of our understanding, and just talking about his own experience from going from a boy to a man. He says in verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childhood, the ways of childhood behind me. Paul is not saying grow up. At least he's not saying it here in this passage. But rather he's illustrating how we operate differently as a child as to when we grow up. You know, those of us who are, who are full-grown, you know, adults now, we don't have to be changed. We don't have to have parents change our diapers, if we will. We don't have to have people read for us. Did you ever do this as a kid? You, you kind of scribble down a whole bunch of letters on, on the paper and say, Mommy, Daddy, what is this, what is this spell? You know, and it's Z, X, T, F, you know, and it doesn't spell anything, honey. Well, what do you mean? Well, it's because as a child, you don't understand how letters work, right? But when you're an adult, you understand totally differently. 
take the, the experience of riding a bike. When you're a kid, you need training wheels, right? To kind of keep you upright. And then you learn. And then when you become an adult, it's kind of like that sensation always returns to you. You know, there's a saying, it's just like riding a bike, right? Most of us can return to the ability to ride a bike because somehow we've learned that. It's returned to us. A whole new reality is revealed. And Paul is not pointing to our need to mature or arrive spiritually, although we do need to mature in Christ, but rather the maturation of the fullness of time when he returns. And so he points out in verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. And now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul illustrates this, what I call the now but not yet reality. Talking about looking into a mirror. Now, something interesting. Actually, Corinth was known for its fine bronze mirrors. They were high quality mirrors of that time, which, which I did not know until just reading through commentaries about this. And yet, Paul says we're looking into a mirror like as looking, and the adjective there is the word we get enigma from, the English word enigma. We're looking into somehow an enigma. Now, I don't think it's like looking into a funhouse mirror, you know, where your head is like, what? You know, and your body is, is totally different. I think that in looking into a mirror, he's talking about an accurate ref- reflection, but the true glory and sharpness of the image is somehow muted. Perhaps in that brown hue of the, of that, of that mirror or the the impurities in, in the, the metal. You know, and even with today's high-resolution cameras, you can get an amazingly crisp picture of somebody, right? But it's not the same as being face-to-face with them, is it? You can have a really sharp picture, but it's not the same as being face-to-face. You know, we're 2,000 years removed from the time that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. We have his word. We have his Holy Spirit that bears testimony. We have church history. And yet at times, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm looking at snapshots of God. And I long for more. I long for more. And maybe you have a really close relationship and maybe you feel like, man, I, my walk with Jesus is, is more like FaceTime or Skype. And I'm kind of experiencing that, but it's still not like being face-to-face, is it? When I'm away, I may call and, and listen to my wife's voice or my kid's voice. I may even FaceTime them. But again, it's not the same as being there face-to-face. Let me ask you this. What kind of longing do you have to see Jesus face to face? To be in His presence? You see, right now, God is not limited by what He knows about me. But I'm limited by what I know about Him. His Word is true. It's accurate. But it's still the partial picture. But he says, 
But then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. As the old hymn says, at that moment, the faith shall be sight. The faith shall be sight. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. I long for that day. And so many of the mysteries I hold in tension will be revealed, will be released even, because of His presence. And at that moment, I won't really care about what gifts I had or didn't have. I won't really care about what positions I held or didn't hold on this earth. At that moment, I won't really care about what wealth I had or didn't have. At that moment, I won't care about what I experienced or didn't experience on earth. Because I will be in His presence. And that will be the answer to the questions that I might have. Do you long for that? Do you long to be in His presence? Do you long to see Him face to face? Do you long to have the veil removed? And have Jesus fully revealed to you? You see, Paul, he's trying to refocus these Corinthians that have their priority, their importance on the wrong thing. For them, it was spiritual gifts. And he's trying to remove and give us the right priorities as well. It may not be spiritual gifts. It might be something else. I don't know. But if it's earthbound, it's probably the wrong priority. Unless it's loving God or others. That's what Paul's trying to do for us here. What matters? What matters? Is how we love. How we respond to His love, the love of the cross, and how we love one another. Those made in God's image. Those for whom Christ died. That's what matters. Verse 13. Now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. <laughs> you see, when Jesus returns, our faith, it will have happened. God will have kept His Word. It will come to pass. And hope, our longings for things to be made right, it'll happen. It will happen. It'll be realized. But love, love, being in His eternal presence, that's what's going to be happening as we're in His forever presence. That's what we're going to be focusing on. And Paul's trying to help us make that our aim, our ambition, and our priority. I hope that is where your heart is pointing and focusing and making it a priority.
Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to ask the worship team to come and close us today. Hmm. Lord Jesus, you're an amazing Savior. Heavenly Father, you are an amazing Father, Creator, God. Holy Spirit, you are an amazing enabler to do the works of God, to be the presence of Christ in our hearts today. And we need you. And I thank you that you have not left us alone. You've come to help us walk this journey. But history is heading somewhere. It is heading towards an eternity with you. And we need you, Lord. We need you to come and change us. Come and make us more like Jesus. We need you to give us the love that we don't have within ourselves to love others. And we need you to give us your eternal perspective. One that's going to be an eternity with you. Help us to long for that, O lover of our souls. Help us to desire you above all else. Because this earth is passing away. But forever love with you will not. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody in this room who has not experienced the love of Jesus yet, if they've not put their faith in you, Would you open the eyes of their heart? Would you help them to know that you came, Jesus, lived a life that they couldn't live. You died to pay a debt they couldn't pay before a holy God and that you conquered death to conquer a foe we could not conquer. I pray for that person that you would open the eyes of their heart that they would respond and experience your love. But for those of us, Lord, who have already put our faith in you, would you keep making us like Jesus? Continue to teach us to love. Continue to give us a forward-looking just view of eternity. That when you come, when the perfect comes, then we will know you as we are fully known. And that is an amazing thought to me. Plant it deep within us, Lord. Help us to desire it. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.